Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. David Taylor about his new book, A Body of Praise. Those of us who tend to think about worship as primarily a matter of the mind or a matter of the heart, it's a reminder about the role our physical bodies play in worship. Especially after the upheavals and bodily deprivations of COVID, it's an essential conversation for us to have. And we thank you, as always, for tuning in. Not long ago, I attended a worship service. As the service started, we were told to close our eyes and quiet our hearts. The aim of this was to clear a space, free from external distraction, close your eyes, and mindful of internal diversions, quiet your heart. The contemplative moment was brief, as if undertaken primarily to signal a shift in posture, a hallowing of the time and space. The musicians began to sing, which let the rest of us know that we could open our eyes and see the projected lyrics on the screen and sing along. William Dernis has argued that the practice of closing eyes in prayer can be directly connected to the inward turn of the Reformation. Even as believers were taught to reject external images, they were encouraged to a new kind of imaginative absorption in service of dramatic action in the world. In other words, we close our eyes so that when we reopen them, we will see this place as part of the divine drama that God is directing. But sometimes I worry if closing our eyes might also make us think that life with God is something that is mostly internal, ethereal, and private, rather than something that is interdependent, embodied, and public. If closing our eyes makes us forget our fellow worshipers, or forget our embodied life in the world, then it is taking us in the wrong direction. To help us with this, on this episode of the podcast, we are talking with Dr. David Taylor. Dr. Taylor is a theologian, an Anglican priest, and the director of initiatives in art and faith. Professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, he has lectured widely on the arts from Thailand to South Africa, and he is the author of a new book, A Body of Praise, understanding the role of our physical bodies in worship. We hope that this conversation will be eye-opening, drawing from scripture, history, and other disciplines to remind us of just how much our physical bodies matter, both in worship as well as in our life in the world. Here's my conversation with Dr. David Taylor. I'm joined now by a featured guest, Dr. David Taylor. Dr. Taylor is the author of a new book, A Body of Praise, Understanding the Role of Our Physical Bodies in Worship, published by Baker Academic. David, thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you for having me. So this is a book, as the subtitle says, about the role of our physical bodies in worship. And that might not seem that intuitive for some of us who tend to think of worship as a matter of the heart. In fact, I was just in a service not long ago where I was told to close my eyes and quiet my heart uh, as if the most important thing happening is happening within me. Uh, But you suggest that this inward focus might actually work against us noticing how much our physical bodies matter. Could you say more about this? Why do we need to take our bodies more seriously in in worship? I think fundamentally it comes down to something that may sound very simple, uh, but as you know, sometimes the simple, obvious things bear you know, mentioning and maybe bear mentioning in fresh ways so that we can see it afresh. But I, I guess I would say that we should take our bodies seriously because fundamentally God takes them seriously. Right. In the very beginning, God takes them seriously in making us from the earth at the very end of all things in in resurrecting our bodies to new and unending life. God takes our body seriously. Uh, At the center of all things stands the incarnate one who definitively and unequivocally 
uh, confirms the goodness of our bodies. Uh, when you look at Israel's worship book, the book that you know God Himself authorizes and and, and verifies and commends <laughs> to to His people, uh, it's a kinetically maximalist book, and uh, the the prophets uh, remind us of the goodness of our bodies in as much as the their vision of the end that the new creation the body always plays an important role uh, it, the mending of the body mm. plays such an important role in their visions and then all throughout the the epistles you have this constant drumbeat sounding sounding out the fact that it is actually through our bodies that the very gospel the kingdom of god gets worked out there is no version of the gospel there is no version of god's kingdom that doesn't manifest itself in visible tangible material ways um, so I think that that's that's probably like the biggest perspective. Um, at another level, I would say our bodies matter because they're not ours to do with as we please. Uh, we don't get to think about it however we want to think about it. We don't get to feel about them however we idiosyncratically or subjectively wish. Um, our, our bodies belong to Christ's flesh. Uh, his flesh is our flesh by virtue of the Holy Spirit making us participants of his life. And so, as I say, kind of in, in, in introduction to the book, uh, at the very least, we're commanded to love God and worship God with our bodies. It's, it's not suggestive language. <laughs> you know? Raise your hands, clap your hands, raise a shout. Um, but there's also a sense in which we need to for our life's sake. And that's what you mean when you say kinetically maximalist. It's this mm -hmm. full range of motion, of movement mm -hmm. in the book of Psalms. It's interesting because yeah. not long ago we had Jen Rosner, who mm -hmm. is a Jewish believer in Jesus on the podcast, mm -hmm. and she also mentioned the way that Judaism is mm -hmm. a fully embodied faith. So if you think of the first two thirds of the Bible, the way that faith is practiced mm -hmm. in terms of festivals and foods, which by contrast, Christians in many streams, including perhaps the stream I'm in, tend to live in their heads, so to speak. Uh, in your book, you point to a lot of Christian teachers who mm. interpret passages like John 4, God is spirit, mm -hmm. those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, as, this is a quote from John Piper, a radical intensification of worship as an inward experience of the heart. But you say that maybe we should understand passages like John 4 differently. So I wonder if you could say more about what Jesus is teaching us about worship in this chapter and other places that might lead us to be, to believe that worship is really about an experience of the heart and not uh, as much an experience of the body. Uh, this is something I originally wrestled with in my book, The Theater of God's Glory, which is an exploration of John Calvin's theology of the physical world. So yay for mm. John Calvin. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I love that guy. Um, I ain't Calvinist uh, or Reformed, but uh, a lot of admiration um, for him. So uh, it, I, I explore at length in that book. In this book, it mainly kind of a summary, but in as much as this text from John 4, 23, 24, has played this outsized role and how it is mainly Protestants and certain maybe sectors of Protestantism have thought about worship. I just felt like I couldn't avoid it. Like I had to, you know, to, to, right. to reckon with it. So I did a lot of reading in biblical scholarship to try to make sense of, you know, traditions of interpretation. And it ended up coming down to two, two approaches to the text. One tradition of interpretation would conclude that Jesus's words to the Samaritan uh, woman are pointing to these invisible, immaterial, essential qualities of God or the nature of God, as well as drawing attention to the interiority of her life. And another tradition of interpretation argues the exact opposite, which is to say that what we have here is actually uh, something that remains consistent with John's gospel, which is that it is profoundly Trinitarian. So the language of spirit and truth is not actually describing an anthropological fact that is mm. that I think right thoughts in my head and I have sincere feelings in my heart. Um, what scholars are arguing in, in this vein is it's actually reminding the Samaritan woman that the kind of worship that the father seeks isn't something that human beings can manufacture. It isn't mm. something that they work up. It isn't something that 
ultimately resides in their capacities to think truth in their head and to feel, you know, the right feelings in their hearts. But it, it is located fundamentally in the work of the Spirit, which in John's Gospel gets used euphemism, euphemistically for language from above, which is to say, you can't do it on your own. You have no metaphysical power to do this new thing that I am inviting you into, I, Jesus, being the truth. And um, so I, I actually find that reading of the text very convincing. And, and I think the thing that I, it's a surprised me when I first started doing the research is how so much of the first tradition um, reads this text in, I mean, I, I could say eisegetical ways that I, I feel like it's sort of projecting onto the text, something that does not reside in the text, but more, I think, I don't know, seriously or problematically, is that the interpretation of the text is rarely brought into conversation with the larger trajectories in John. Mm. And one of the things that you discover, I think, when you look at the patterns that recur in John, is it is profoundly positive in its estimation of the material, of the physical mm. world. Everything from John 1 and the incarnation, John 2 and the miracle of Cana, you know, in the middle of John with the, the you know, the, the, the miracle of the feeding um, and all the way to the end where you have scholars draw attention to kind of these echoes of, of, of Garden of Eden type language um, with Mary, with the breathing, sort of this very fleshy, as it were, exchange between Jesus and Thomas. Mm. And so when you when you read John 4 in light of those larger patterns, it's so difficult to escape um, you know, this reading of, of, um, of the passage that would say it's, it's, it's actually about how God is renewing all of the earth mm. and in Jesus, that renewal takes place yeah. and we're invited to participate in it. The only other thing I'll say about it is at the end of the day, I actually think that, the, that this text, the John four is actually agnostic about the physical, um, shape and content of worship. I actually think when you really you know, tease it out, which I try to do in, in the theater of God's glory, there, there's really no prescription that is being offered about what we should or shouldn't do with the physical sort of shape of worship. Um, and that is to be something that you tease out beyond the gospel parameters. Yeah. Um, and I think you see that obviously in the early church, trying to make sense of what that looks like. Yeah, and that's interesting because if we take an interpretation that is different than the first stream, then it leads us to believe that there is actually greater continuity between Jewish practices of worship mm -hmm. that we see in the book mm -hmm. of Psalms and the practices of worship that we find yeah. in the New Testament. It made me right. think as you were talking about uh, the heart and the head, uh, just how often we tend to play off these against each other, mm -hmm. head knowledge over against heart knowledge. Uh, but you also mm -hmm. point out that there is mm -hmm. body knowledge. Um, what do you mean by this, <laughs> and how does this play out in worship? Yeah, um, I'll answer that question, but first let me answer a question that sometimes makes people worry about me, and that is that I don't care about the head and the heart. <laughs> <laughs> and so let me just say, for the record, I, I have a profound interest in head knowledge, I mean, for crying out loud, I'm an academic. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I have a very high estimation of heart knowledge. And that's something I had to grow into uh, in my earlier you know, adult years. But reckoning with how it is that God uh, does such amazing, beautiful, powerful things out of the heart. But for this book, it's body. Um, so body knowledge is like a big umbrella and then sort of like a subcategory. So in sort of the big umbrella, body knowledge is like, you know, when there are weather changes and you have a bum knee and you feel it, you know, your knees feel mm. sort of something is at, you know, at play in the climate, in the weather. Well, that's a form of like your body knows something. You don't need a weather app to know that barometric pressures are rising or falling. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we had a gardener when I was a kid in Guatemala, I grew up in Guatemala and he was so in tune with, with the land, with, you know, creation that he could smell the air and tell us whether a storm was coming later that wow. day or the day after he just had us, he could, he could sense the yeah. atmosphere and tell us, you know, um, I was an avid runner in my twenties. Um, and, uh, I ran so much, you know, put in the proverbial 10,000 hours, 
that eventually I could step outside and tell you what the temperature was within two degrees because my body had acquired, my skin had acquired sort of this capacity to tell, oh, it's like 42 degrees or thereabouts. So these are kind of like simple forms or like when you play piano, you know, you put in the 10,000 hours, your fingers have a mind of their own. You don't have to cognitively, you know, make a series of discrete, you know, decisions about where to put your fingers, your fingers, you know, and athletes, I think, or muscle memory that comes into play. I think like the more interesting part of like body knowledge that plays itself into like, you know, human language. And Mark Johnson talks about this in his you know, wonderful book on, on the body. Um, he, he talks about how um, our language is so often rooted in our experiences of the physical world. So when we, when we say things like, oh, I'm feeling up today or I'm feeling down today, that, that's, that's only intelligible because there's a thing called gravity. And either we have a sense of lightness because gravity feels like it has a less sort of pull upon us or gravity is pulling us down some, you know, sort of forceful way and we feel heavy to the ground. Uh, or when we say things like, oh, I, I grasp that idea, that, that phrase, that statement is only meaningful because we have first held physical objects in our physical hands. And so we have some kind of um, analog for what it means to grasp something. When it comes to worship, uh, and and I mentioned this in the first chapter, and then basically the rest of the book is trying to you know play this out for the reader. We make um, participate in corporate worship at some point. Maybe it's singing songs, maybe it's confession of sins, and we hold our hands open, you know, the palms open to the heavens. And this is a way to say, with our bodies, I remain open and I remain receptive. Now, my hope is that, you know, 10,000 hours later, this practice of holding our hands open will cultivate in us a disposition of open-handedness to God in the rest of our lives. Hmm. And I would say the same thing with kneeling or bowing or, you know, prostrate um, or holding hands that some traditions do a lot of, that over time, this would forge sort of these instincts in us, kind of these dispositions in, in the world, which I write about later, these don't come automatically. I mean, I was raised in, in, a, in a Catholic, predominantly Catholic country, um, and people went to mass all the time, which was kinesthetically maximalist, mm -hmm. but you still had, you know, mafia <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, that did ma mafioso kinds of things. So it didn't matter how much they went to Catholic mass and did all this stuff with their bodies. Yeah. It didn't translate into ethically virtuous yeah, you know, conduct. But I think in principle, um, what we do with our bodies over time do register uh, a way of being in the world. And hopefully, you know, the context mm -hmm. of worship can participate in the act of formation of Christ likeness in us. Yeah, that's good. And I want to ask you more about that in a second yeah. about why worship doesn't <laughs> seem like it's working, uh, you know, to form yeah. not just Catholics in Guatemala, but us. Uh, here in everyday life. Right. Yes, exactly. But before we get there, you mentioned a few different worship postures, kneeling and prostrate. And I learned a lot from reading this book, especially about the way that body posture mm -hmm. in prayer and worship has changed throughout church history. For example, we tend to think of either mm -hmm. sitting or kneeling to pray as the standard prayer posture, but you point out that standing to pray mm -hmm was the primary prayer posture for the early church. And I wonder if you could say more about mm -hmm. why this was the case, and if there are other things mm -hmm. that might surprise us about the role of the body in worship throughout church history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the interesting things that you learn, or maybe relearn, <laughs> when you you know, research how it is, that, let's say, the first three centuries before Constantine, you know, what was going on with you know, sort of the physicality of worship there before Christianity and Christian, you know, Christians themselves have, you know, legal status and then permission to flourish socially, economically, politically, artistically, and so on. Uh, and then, you know, the time periods after medieval and so on and so forth is everybody is reading the biblical text with theological presuppositions. Nobody really comes to the text neutrally, as I'm sure you tell your students all the time. Yeah. So, so I think it's incredibly surprising to Protestants, not surprising to Eastern Orthodox because they still do this, but the first virtual thousand years of church history, standing is the dominant posture when you come mm -hmm. to corporate worship. 
which sounds like like that sounds tiring on your legs and feet and knees, right? Or waist or back. Yeah, I don't even want to stand up for a concert anymore. <laughs> That's my number one question. Uh, can I sit down or do I have to stand up the whole time? Right. Well, the funny thing is when you go to, maybe it's not funny, but uh, a curious thing is when you visit Eastern Orthodox you know, churches, they're not only standing, there's an ambulatory aspect to it. So there's like a walking around and I think it's like incredibly physically intelligent thing to do. Like a therapeutically, you know, physical therapy would say, don't just stand you know, in a rigid, move your body around. And they're doing that. Right. <laughs> um, this, you know, why is it that, that you know, early centuries of the church stand? Well, they look at scripture and they look at the Psalms and other sort of moments in the gospels and the epistles. And they look at Revelation and they say, well, what is like the most appropriate, the most fitting way to be before God in our bodies? Because there is no other way for us to be human except in our bodies. Right. Um, and they say, well, um, Objects that are fully reaching up to God and fully faced out to God. Um, that seems like the proper disposition. And, you know, therefore, I guess, standing, sort of this sort of maximalist upright position that, that even as God raised Jesus from the dead, so there's this mm. upward, you know, trajectory and our faces are are turned up, you know, toward God, then then standing seems to make the most sense. So it corresponds theologically, the liturgical posture corresponds theologically to the resurrection is mm. kind of the main sort of idea that comes into play. Kneeling would be the exception, but you would kneel, you know, for penitential reasons, you know, confession of sin, Lent, and so on and so forth. And it's only in the medieval age that kneeling comes into play and then becomes the dominant posture for Christians in worship, but it's a, it's a, it's a cultural importation, uh, an import good from feudal societies where you have the practice of somebody who, who is renting land, using land that belongs to the Lord. And the Lord says, yes, you can use this land and you can make a small profit off of it. But, you know, we need to sign the contract, you know, it's a John Hancock kind of moment but they're not signing a document. What happens is, is the individual puts his hands in that kind of typical prayer hands that we see on, you know, Catholic mm -hmm. icons and stuff. And then the Lord puts his hands over the folded hands. And that's kind of the, the physical signature to say, I am pledging fealty. Um, so then that gets imported into the liturgical space. And so kneeling mm -hmm. and praying in that kind of posture becomes common i think the other kind of fun things you discover is is the kiss of peace like if 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 you have spent any amount of time in latin america you know that greeting with a kiss or the mediterranean countries greeting with a kiss is just like normal way that you greet each other and that would be true you know in in you know the many early centuries of the church that greeting with a kiss is is a common way of of expressing you know uh, neighborliness peace but you would only do it with members of the same social economic class or ethnic class, or ethnic group. Mm -hmm. But now in this body that is bringing, you know, Jew and Greek, male and female, you know, uh, Greek and barbarian, you know, as, 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 as the New Testament puts it, all are now being yeah. brought into this common space. And so the kiss of peace was this radically subversive act of overturning um, hierarchies. In, in the society of the time. And uh, somehow shaking hands, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't have the same potency mm. yeah. as that kiss of peace would have had. I mean, other things would be like pews don't make it into the church's, you know, corporate practice in any normative way until the 13th century. Mm. And that's just a boatload of centuries. Yeah. <laughs> Before that's like, oh, pews are normal, you know, <laughs> organs are normal. Well, organs don't make it into like the 10th century. And I think that's hopefully the benefit of church history. You know, you read it afresh, you encounter things afresh.
Yeah, I always show that passage to my students, greet one another with a holy kiss, to alert them to the cultural dynamics mm-hmm. of interpretation. And when we say we take scripture literally, what does that mean in terms of our cultural practices? And it leads me to my next question. You write about a debate that happens among worship scholars about what is called originalism, in which the historic practice of the church directs our worship today. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. we can find a worship practice in the early church, that makes it normative for what we do or what we don't do. Those of us in reform circles may be more familiar with what's called the regulative principle of worship, in which the practices we find explicitly stated in scripture are mm-hmm. the ones that are normative mm-hmm. for what we do or don't do in worship. And those debates have often struck me as a bit culturally naive, or they can be, sneaking in cultural presuppositions or canonizing particular Mm -hmm. cultural expressions out of a good desire to be faithful to Scripture uh, or to tradition. But can you help us with this? How do we allow Scripture and the great tradition of the Church to direct our embodied worship while also remaining attentive Mm -hmm. to cultural diversity, to cultural difference in the ways that we live in our bodies and use our physical bodies to worship. So you have the very famous and immensely helpful words of St. Paul that are meaningful only in context in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says that worship ought to be orderly. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what does it mean in context? What was actually going on in, you know, the context of, you know, the Corinthian church that required this admonitory word? And then there's, you know, sort of the levels that kind of rise up from that of, well, what is, what is it, what is it for something to be ordered? Um, What is the opposite of of order. Well, maybe disorder, but is there a thing called non-order, which jazz musicians would say yes. Um, but the text does not tell us, culturally speaking, what order ought to look like. So you have sort of analogs that can come into play. Um, what does an orderly basketball game look like? Well, it, it's orderly on the terms of the game itself, that there are boundary lines um, and there are rules of play. Within those boundary lines, rules of play, well, there's a lot of creativity and innovation that comes in. But that form of, of orderliness or the kind of orderliness that would mark um, Lindy Hop dancing or, or hip hop dancing, like there's an order to it. There, like there's a logic to it, but it, it's very dynamic, right? Um, or a jazz, you know, ensemble. Um, is orderly on its own terms, which would be different from a performance of Bach, you know, Goldberg variation or something like that. But what happens in the early centuries of the church and then eventually when Christianity is, is, is legalized is that Roman culture and more specifically elite Roman culture uh, begins to determine the, the rules of grammar for hmm. the proper idea of order, which is hmm. then marked by... Um, dignified, restrained, modest, economical type movement, um, because that would be what would correspond, you know, to, to that, how they thought normal world <laughs> should look like. In sharp contrast, however, to the earthy spirituality of Jewish worship, in, and in sharp contrast also to the, again, kinetic, kinetically sort of maximalist spirituality of Afri- typically African worship. And so you have had a lot of African theologians kind of come on pretty strong over the last hundred years and say, well, maybe since the 1960s in Vatican II, when there's an attempt to renew the church to say, hey, you, you, you have married, falsely married gospel and culture. You have, mm-hmm. you have created an, a, an idolatry out of elite Roman society and then basically said all cultures in, in, in every you know, part of history and, and, and the globe should actually do worship in this idea of order. But my order, um, like a well-ordered worship also, could it also be kinetically fulsome? And, uh, and so those are the kinds of things that you, I think, you know, discover um, uh, when you read uh, history carefully. And, and again, maybe so much of history is this sequence of action and reaction you know, it's like swinging from one thing to the other. Right. And, and, and the renewals of the church may swing in one direction and a renewal may swing in another direction. So John Calvin is swinging away from what he felt were these sort of engorgements and excessive uh, 
you know, attributes of liturgy. There's too much, right? And we're missing the basics. And so he kind of swings in the direction of, of modest, a modest, minimalist, uh, economical type, a, a simplicity, which would be kind of a word that would predominate in reformed sort of reflection about worship. But then in the 19th century, you have, or, you know, even in, in Wesley's time, you have maybe the renewal is going in another direction to say, but our hearts need to be strangely warmed and our bodies need to be, you know, activated. So they're fully given over to God. And so I think that's what I try to do in that chapter on history is try to help the reader understand what I call the, the sort of the double-edged sword of originalism. That is, if we can find it somewhere in history, then it's good for us. If we can't find it, it's not good for us or the opposite, right? We don't see these things in church history, therefore we ought not to do it. Well, the fact of the matter is you don't find the use of musical instruments anywhere in worship in the New Testament. And at the very least, you don't find it prescribed. And you find trumpets, you know, at the so-called rapture. <laughs> and you find trumpets in the book of Revelation. But those are pretty dreadful trumpets. Those are like terrifying. Those are like aren't a happy yeah. trumpet. But we have come to conclude that musical instruments ought to belong in corporate worship. This is where I think the Church of Christ people are more consistent. And they're like, nope, it ain't there. Yeah. It's not prescribed. It's not proscribed. It's just silent all the way through. So nix the musical instruments. And this is where culture comes into play. Well, we can appeal to the Psalms for the musical instruments. But why do we not bring all the goodness of the Psalter you know, into our right. practices? It's singing and dancing and shouting and reveling and all those kinds of things. So I think that's what I'm trying to do in that chapter. The last thing I'll say is that the, there's this thing called the Nairobi Statement on Worship and Culture, result of a three-year uh, series of conversations in the Lutheran Church, global Lutheran Church. And so in 1996, they gathered together and produced this document on worship and culture. That is how Lutheran churches should think about the relationship. And they came to the conclusion, which I think, you know, many of us have embraced as, as very sound and wise, that all, the gospel and worship should always be contextual, cross-cultural, transcultural, and countercultural. Um, and you see that the gospel is always doing that, you know, all throughout the gospels themselves in the New Testament, Old Testament. And so I think when it comes to worship, we I, I think we want to hold in dynamic tension how it is that our worship can be culturally contextual. Like that's a good thing we want to preserve. It's also transcultural, that, that some things, you know, will transcend cultural context. Some will be cross-cultural in the sense that we will be sharing cultural goods with one another. Um, and then lastly, and this is something Leslie Newbigin says in his book, Pluralist, uh, um, Foolishness to the Greeks is the name of the book. Yes. And he talks about how it is that the global church should always be holding mirrors up to each other in order for other members of Christ's body to help us see how we may be confusing gospel and culture or making certain things normative in our culture that ought not to be normative. Um, and, you know, places that we have created idolatries of our culture. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I wonder, you mentioned the call for worship to be orderly. I wonder what you would have to say to those who are in charge of ordering the worship for their congregation. What would you have to say to worship planners? Uh, this book is full of a rich diversity of practices, engaging the senses, considering the arrangement of chairs, how all of that shapes us. And I always want worry in worship discussions if it might become a bit of a novelty or an appropriation right. of someone else's tradition that feels cheap sometimes. And so I wonder what counsel you might have for worship planners uh, of how to order worship in a way that is intentional in doing all those mm -hmm. things that you just said, uh, engaging okay. our bodies in worship. Yeah, you know, uh, at Fuller Seminary, as you know yourself, uh, you know, it's, it's multi-denominational. And so I am negotiating so many different traditions when I am teaching. And one of the things I eventually concluded, you know, as I kept sort of experimenting with how it is that I can provide insight and wisdom for my students is that I ended up sort of realizing that maybe the first step in these um, activities of renewal um, or refreshing our liturgies is to mine the riches of your own tradition and by, you know, mining um, mm -hmm. as an M I N E, uh, not minding, <laughs> but mining and discovering um, maybe at different um, 
eras of the tradition's history or uh, different um, sectors of of the global expression of of you know your ecclesial tradition possibilities um, that you might uh, retrieve or recover. Um, so, for example, I was a pastor at a charismatic church, uh, non denominational, f- f- you know, free church tradition, and um, uh, we were not good at silence. Um, silence was something that was profoundly un- uncomfortable or it felt, it was felt to be antithetical, you know, like real worship is, we're just, you know, all out, you know, walls sound. Uh, <laughs> and I, as an Anglican was always trying to say, you know, but silence matters. And they're like, yeah, that's because you're Anglican. And so I had a student in my class who's vineyard, a vineyard pastor. And he's like, I, I can't just, you know, simply be in the business of important experts. You know, I'm importing the Catholic and I'm importing the Lutheran and I'm importing the Presbyterian and the Methodist. Like at the end, at some point, I'm you know people are going to get crazy, and so I said, oh, that's that you know that that's completely reasonable response. So maybe the question is, are there um, places in the charismatic tradition, charismatic Pentecostal tradition, um, that you are a part of as a vineyard pastor um, that intersect with the possibility of silence? And lo and behold, um, if you go far enough back in history, you discover that the Catholic mystics are themselves in many ways charismatics. They're, you know, charismatics of their time. Um, they love adoring, you know, the face of the Lord and their affections are full for God. And it's very emotional and sensory in the way that charismatic, but they appreciate silence. So maybe you can discover that and you're retrieving it. And, and in a sense, it's indigenous. And, and because it's indigenous, to the soil of your tradition, it has a fighting chance to flourish. So that would be one thing I would say. The other kind of the bigger goal is just to ask yourself, in what ways uh, might we deepen um, our fellowship with the Triune God in the fullness of our humanity? And that could involve micro changes or macro changes. Macro changes are going to be more difficult, but micro changes are like our congregation a few years ago, our pastor said, hey, you know what? I think it'd be really good for us to hold hands during the saying of the Lord's Prayer. And I know it's going to be weird. Some of you are uncomfortable with that. I get it. There's, you know, mercy for all kinds of things. But I think we need to kind of have the sense of like, Mm. when we say this prayer that the Lord has taught us to feel it in our hands. And at first it was weird. And then after a while it became a a cultural, you know, uh, culturally comfortable or culturally familiar kind of thing. And, um, and that was really powerful, you know, for us or, you know, uh, uh, in the opposite direction, our congregation as Anglican, you know, a lot of people would feel more uncomfortable raising their hands in worship mm-hmm. uh, spontaneously. But we do raise our hands um, at the beginning of, of the celebration of the Lord's Supper as something prescribed, like part of the liturgy is we raise our hand, we lift them up to the Lord, our, our hands and our hearts, right? Mm-hmm. So trying to encourage our congregation to consider the possibility that we're already raising our hands uh, because we believe it is the right way to honor God. What if we gave ourselves permission to raise our hands out of the overflow of our heart's desire to honor God? So those are the kinds of things maybe I would say is like discover possibilities within your tradition and then discover like micro and macro changes that still retain integrity to who you are as an individual congregation, who you are as a family of congregations and, you know, as members of the larger body of Christ. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, Let's go back to that question of why worship doesn't work. Um, In recent years, as you know, there has been a move both in the academic and the popular literature towards the importance of habituated practice Mm -hmm. in Christian formation. Uh, a well-known version is Jamie Smith's cultural liturgy series, his popular book, You Are What You Love, mm-hmm. which concentrates on the ways that our desires are shaped by liturgies, by these bodily practices that we engage in. Uh, but sometimes this can sound a bit like worship determinism, that if we just get the practices mm-hmm. right, if we just get the rituals right over time, uh, the 10,000 hours you mentioned, uh, it will form us in patterns of faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on this from your research on the role of the body in formation. Why does it seem like there are lots of us who have spent the 10,000 hours going through the motions without meaningful change? Why does it seem like our bodies believe one thing and do another? 
why does it seem like worship doesn't work? Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I try to un- uh, unpack this question in my last chapter. And I know I, I, I try to make sense of it all throughout the book. Maybe I'll say it this way. Fundamentally, God is in the business of holding all things together in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Now, I know that sounds like like a big theology kind of thing to say. (laughs) Um, But if it is true that the business of the Holy Trinity is to to reestablish shalom on earth as it is in heaven— then basically what that's getting after is everything is related to everything. Uh, the integrity of everything is everything. It's an all hands on deck affair and ho- the holistic wholeness of everything is everything. Everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those who are listening, we're recording this right after the Oscars. Um, okay, what do I mean by that? If what we do when we gather once a week in corporate worship is bifurcated, disintegrated from what we do the rest of our lives, it will fail. If what we do at home is bifurcated from what we do uh, in we, when we gather at corporate worship, it will eventually break down. If what we do at church and at home is disintegrated or bifurcated from how we are in the public square, how we are at work and school and elsewhere, it will eventually break down. So the question is, how can what we do in corporate worship be deeply integrated to what we do at home, what we do in the the therapist you know office, what we do with our neighbors, what we do you know, in the marketplace, and so on and so forth. So I could be somebody who is profoundly committed to using my hands in both prescriptive and spontaneous ways that I, I like, I am all about crossing myself. I will cross my sign myself with the cross everywhere I go all the time. And I, I feel like it's very important for me, you know, in the musical worship to raise my hands, whether I feel like it or not. If, however, I am not also asking um, God's help and the help of others uh, so that my hands are the loving hands of Jesus at home, then I am a fractured, you know, I, I am fractured in my humanity. And so, uh, I mean, I am not, I, I, my hands are n- never used in abusive ways, um, thank God, but I can withhold care with my hands. Um, or if I have an argument with my wife, I can get into the habit of crossing my arms and holding myself at a distance from her. Um, so what I need is to trust that Jesus cares deeply about what I do with my hands and arms at home. And if I am broken in some way in the ways that I am in my bodies, then I need to ask my wife's help. I need to ask my children's help. I need to ask a therapist's help. I need to ask friends to come alongside me and say, hey, you do realize, David, you have this habit. Um and then I get good help there on the home front, relational front, but then with members of Christ's body with whom I disagree, or they irritate me or frustrate me or disappoint me, or they cause despair in me. Um, if I am not practicing the extension of the right hand of fellowship to them, then I am not fully integrated. I am not whole. And so I think that is what happens. That's why The Sopranos can be such an amazing TV series where you see a bunch of Catholics go to mass and you go to the confessional booth and say, Father, forgive me for I've sinned, and then go out and uh, <laughs> and commit dastardly deeds of violence um, <laughs> because they're not integrated. And at the end of the day, to go back to my original statement, God is interested in, in, in the maximal comprehensive integration of all things in the one in whom all things hold together. So the moment we hermetically seal off one facet of our lives from the other, it's at that moment that the disintegrating forces of sin can sneak in through the back door or invisibly and fracture and warp our ways of being in the world. Yeah. And speaking of disintegration, and this will be the last question, but speaking of disintegration, uh, the shadow that hangs over this book is the season that we've been living through for the last three years of COVID-19 
of the pandemic. And it's funny, I don't know if funny is the right word, but every book written during this time had to reckon with the pandemic in some way. Yeah. Say, this is the way that the uh, this book changed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but this book in particular had to reckon with COVID-19, uh, not least because of the way that it sent so many of us online for mm. extended periods of time. And some have yet to return to in-person worship. Um, others uh, have never been able to fully participate in in-person worship, mm -hmm. and so they've mm -hmm. found the accommodations that almost every church developed to be a great blessing. And so now we're trying to figure out what do we do now. So how do you think we should reckon with the new possibilities and challenges mm -hmm. of the digital age uh, and the accessibility questions when it comes to uh, embodied worship and the arguments that you make in this book? The argument I make in a previous book, Glimpses of the New Creation, is relevant, I think, here because I really spent an entire book trying to make a case that every practice of worship, including every use of the arts, always opens up and closes down possibilities to form our humanity. So no one practice of worship, no one practice of art does everything. I think that's true also with digital technologies. Um, I would say at bottom with a little asterisk, I would say all digital technologies are neutral on their own. Once they are incorporated uh, into the life of a congregation, then they acquire inertias. And those inertias can positively form us and they can negatively form us or malform us or form us deficiently. So it's not so much that they're malforming us, but we're missing out on something. And uh, it's kind of like, I think it's a little bit of a tension that the New Testament is, 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 is aware of uh, what it means to be incorporated, incorporated bodies and distributed bodies. Uh, both are important to the life of the church. But when we welcome in any form of digital technology, including um, the microphone, uh, the microphone made it possible for church buildings to be built differently right. because now you could um, achieve intimacy anywhere in the building. You didn't have to have a dome, you know, over the, the, the you know, the pulpit that could sort of amplify <laughs> sound out. So now with a microphone, you can achieve all sorts of things. The introduction of electricity, you can now obviate the rhythms of creation, the rhythms of our bodies. Um, I don't know if you ever had lock-ins when you were yes. a teenager. <laughs> you know, I love the lock-in. Uh, and it's only really possible because of electricity, although I guess you could do it with camping. <laughs> but um, I think the question uh, is less so much... Um, are there good techno digital technologies and are there bad technologies? But instead, how might um, digital technologies enable us to worship God with the fullness of our common and individual life? Uh, and then how might these individual technologies both open up and close down? Mm -hmm. So I think what we discovered was digital technologies put us in the same company as the elderly in nursing homes as the terminally you know, sick and their caregivers, the shut-ins, homeless, uh, people with different kinds of disabilities, uh, people, Christians who may be in, in context of duress or persecution. Now we felt our kinship with them. Yeah. That is an amazing gift that the pandemic gave us, if I guess yeah. we had eyes to see. Um, I think we also discovered ways in which our worship could still be in some manner embodied. That is, even though we're at home or, you know, in a hotel or at work, we still can activate our bodies together um, or by ourselves. And it's, it still is bodily in one sense. And I try to make sense of this in, the, in that chapter on ethics. At the same time, I, you know, I think it's fair to ask, well, what, what losses are incurred? Um, with these digital technologies. And again, it's like maximalist use of digital technologies and, and, and modest or minimalist use. You know, each one sort of demands different sort of exercises and discernment. 
But I think we all discovered this um, practically impossible to sing the doxology together, you know, through our computers. I've tried it. Um, when when the pandemic hit in the spring of 2020, my uh, my class went to you know all online as it did with everybody. And one of the things I would do in my residential th- uh, classes on theology is I would start by singing the doxology together. <laughs> so I thought, come on, guys, we can try this. But with that blessed half second delay, oh yeah. my gosh, it was so <laughs> wrong. Um, yeah. You can't really lay hands on each other when you pray mm-hmm. for each other. You can't smell flowers or incense or, you know, anointing oil. Um, you know, preachers, I mean, I remember preaching to a camera and I cannot read your nonverbal communication. And that is, you know, 90% of the ways that we feel that we are together is by our nonverbals. Um, so there is a lot that is lost, but I guess what I'm hopeful, and I, I wrote a piece for Christianity Today, you know, at, at the, you know, in the first month of the pandemic, because I thought, man, you know, maybe they're kind of, you know, some things that can help us in, in negotiate this in, in life-giving rather than just frustrating ways. But I, I hope that congregations, you know, at the end of, you know, these different periods of um, the pandemic would say, would not say, well, let's get rid of all this stuff. But we would say, okay, we have welcomed in these digital technologies. Uh, maybe some of them will, will keep because we discover that they are offering um, a way for our people to be more deeply knit together and more deeply knit mm-hmm. to Christ himself. But also to be very sober-minded and clear-headed in, in discerning ways in which, you know, there are irreducible goods that result from being together. And I'll end with sort of this example that I use with my students. I can play, um, you know, NBA basketball with friends through video games that are very, very, you know, amazing video games. And I could even use, you know, uh, ocular, you know, uh, what is it? Headsets, you know, VR to approximate, you know, what it feels like. But there's, there's no substitute for having five or 10 people on a basketball court using their bodies all in the same physical space. It's like, you cannot replicate that. Not even in, um, uh, ready player one, you know, that movie where everything is possible, but the conclusion of that novel and that movie is there are some goods that are essential to our humanity that are not replicatable in the digital VR augmented world. And I think those are things that we have to reckon with as like, the telos of our worship together. Well, our guest has been Dr. David Taylor. The book is A Body of Praise, published by Baker Academic. David, thanks for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org, or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.